extra, extra, read all about it. Today we're about claiming it. Jesus is alive. He beat the power of Satan's sin, death, and hell. He rose from the grave. The grave couldn't hold him. Our Savior is alive. And today, we have the opportunity, just like his first followers did, to claim it. There are several things that you can choose to claim. Let's just list off a few. For example, if you're a history buff, you could claim things like VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. If you're an adventure seeker, you could claim it like a gold mine. My goodness, the West was won by adventure seekers claiming things like that. And I've got the date here, uh, 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant signed two laws into law. The first one launched the very first ever, the world's first national park, Yellowstone National Park. That would make a great destination this summer on your family vacation. The other law opened the West up to be claimed. And if you had a pickaxe and a mule and you wanted to claim it, you could launch your very own gold mine. Speaking of such things, if you're planning your summer vacation, you haven't done that yet, parents, listen to this. You could take your kids. There's a place in Arkansas. It's a state park, and with a shovel, you could just let them dig to their heart's content. And as I understand it, every once in a while, somebody actually finds a diamond in that diamond mine. It's a state park. You could claim it. We have folks in the room that I'm sure are in the insurance business, insurance agents, insurance claim adjusters. You know about claiming it. You've had some of these conversations. These are real, actual insurance claims. The first one, and I quote, in an attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. That's a bad day. Claim it. How about this one? I came around a corner while cycling to work and was run off the road by a herd of guinea pigs. I broke my arm. I have so many questions. How about this one? I told the police that I was not injured, but on removing my hat, found that I had a fractured skull. That's a bad day. Claim it. How about this one? I rear-ended the car in front of me and smashed the taillight. That's a bad day, but it gets worse. I then reversed slightly so I could see the damage, but hit the front bumper of the driver behind me. Oops. Then I opened my door to exit the vehicle, and I knocked down a passing, passing cyclist. Oh, it's a bad day. Claim it. My favorite, though, this last one. The accident was caused by me waving to a man I hit last week. It's a bad day. Claim it. Any The Office fans out there? You know the direction I'm going right now, probably that moment when Michael Scott walks into the room and shouts, I declare bankruptcy. He claims it. I don't think that's how that works. How does that work with faith? Claim it. For some of us. It was a slow burn, right? God planted something in our heart, and 
This is what God does. He takes the chisel in his hand and he starts to knock off the rough corners of the human heart. For some of us, it happened in a moment. And I love a testimony like that, where in a moment God says, this is who I am. And in the moment, that human heart says, yeah, and I choose to claim it. Regardless of who you are today, I want to invite you that today could very well be your day to claim it. The Bible makes some pretty strong truth claims about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's still doing, what he wants to do in your heart, in my heart. Today, I want to challenge you. Lean into the opportunity to claim it. Here's our outline for the day. By the way, this is a progression. I think this is absolutely true. There are some things you can know. There are things about Jesus that you absolutely can take to the bank. You can know these. You can claim it. Then there are some things that you choose to believe. If this is true, then maybe I can take one more step of faith here. But I'm going to warn you right up front. In this faith journey that God is calling each one of us on, not only can you know some things, not only can you choose to believe some things, but there's, there's always a step of faith. Always. I want to start first with you can know. There are some things you can absolutely know. For example, there are good people in the world. You can know that. You can also know that in moments of crisis, oftentimes those good people, what did Mr. Rogers' mom say? Look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. In moments of crisis, good people rise to the surface. Think back to 9-11. Some of you were alive during that era. You remember the days, the weeks, the months following 9-11, the country banded together. Think back a few years ago, the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, we had it for about two weeks, right? And then we started fighting and bickering, but good people. Good people come together in moments of crisis. I was reminded of this just a few weeks ago. I was uh, out in Colorado. I had a son that was doing, wrapping up his college internship at Crested Butte Ski Resort. Had a daughter in um, Colorado Springs. I was driving between the two. I had just crested Monarch Mountain Pass. It's like 11,500 feet. It was a gorgeous day. I get above the tree line, though, and it starts to snow. The weather turns. There's like an inch, two inches of snow on the ground, just like that. And then I see brake lights and more brake lights, and then more brake lights in front of them. The whole caravan is coming to a stop, dead stop. Uh-oh, something's up. I get out of the rental car that I'm driving, and I walk back to the white panel van behind me, chatting with this guy. Seemed like a really nice guy. We talked for a while, wonder what's going on. Oh, he's telling me what he does. He's a delivery, car, a delivery guy. He drives back and forth through on I-50 in Colorado all the time. He's seen this before. And then I said, well, hey, what, what do you do for a living? Like, what, what are you hauling here? And he says, weed. <laughs> it's Colorado. I said, oh, okay. Um, and he smiled and he said, yeah, I've got like 50 pounds of weed here in this van. I'm, I'm driving around and delivering it. Wow, okay, all right. I walk behind him and there's a, like an adventure seeker couple of guys. They're piling out of an SUV and these guys were backcountry skiers. They had that morning hiked to the top of a mountain with their skis, 
skied down back country. Now they're on their way home. They're locals. They live at the base of the mountain, about the same space where I'm going to stay in a hotel for the night. We're 18 miles from our destination, and here we are stopped in traffic. Hike up to see what's going on. It's two semi-trucks jackknifed. The two local adventure seeker guys say, "Eh, this is going to be ours. We're not getting through here anytime soon. Oh, no, what am I going to do? And they said, well, follow us. We're going to take a three-hour detour. We'll take you through rural Colorado. We'll get you to where you need to go. So I took off. I'm following along. It's like a bad Christian joke. (laughs) You got a weed delivery guy, two adventure seekers, and a pastor walk into a bar, right? (laughs) And all the time we're driving, I'm thinking, there are good people in the world. I mean, you've got a couple of adrenaline junkies, you've got a weed delivery guy, good people in the world, right? And probably they're thinking the whole time, well, that pastor, he seemed like an okay guy as well. There are good people in the world, even even a pastor. There's some things about Jesus that you can know. You can know there's some good people in the world. There's some things about Jesus that you can know. There's a whole bunch of them. I only have time to share with you three today. Here's the first one. These are things you can know. Jesus walked the earth, literally. The historical Jesus, I believe him to be the God who became man. But he walked the earth, a very real, literal, historical figure. You could take that truth to the bank. You could know that Jesus walked the earth. This isn't up for debate. We're going to take a journey today through the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There are some breadcrumbs along the way. John is an old man writing his Gospel account. Last week, if you were here for Palm Sunday weekend, we talked about how through the Passion Week, the week we're wrapping up today, that Jesus went on a, generally speaking, east-to-west journey, and he invited people to walk together with him. There was a moment when the apostle Peter, one of his disciples, he didn't go east to west. He took a step backwards the other direction, away from Jesus. He denied Jesus three times, then the rooster crowed. Perhaps you know that story. This is the moment when Jesus later reinstates Peter. He looks him in the eyes, and he restores him to ministry. So much so, he actually tells Peter then, this is how you can expect to die. By the way, that's something you can know as well. We're all going to die. Eleven of the twelve first followers, early Jesus family, those guys, eleven of the twelve died for their faith. They chose to die for something that they deeply believed in. That should tell us something about the trust we have to claim this truth for ourselves. The text goes on. There's a story that continues. It's after this moment. Jesus tells Peter, this is how you're going to die. Let's read together. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved... (laughs) John is inserting himself into the story here. This is not a cocky statement. This is a, can you believe it? Jesus loves even me. John was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? 
John is inserting himself parenthetical note into the story. When Peter saw him, John, he asked, Lord, what about him? What about that guy? You've told me how I'm going to die. Now what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, which is exactly what happened. He was the last person. He died of natural causes. What is that to you? You, I'm talking to you, Peter. You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple, John, would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies. John's inserting himself again. He's saying, this is the guy we're talking about, me. Testifies to these things and who, write, who wrote them down. And then I love this. We know that his testimony is true. We know this. This is something we can know. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. Here's what you can know. You can take this to the bank. Jesus walked the earth. Extra, extra, read all about it. Jesus did a lot. What did it say? The whole world will not have enough room for the books that could be written about the account, the stories of what he did. Jesus' ministry was witnessed by many. There were a ton of eyewitnesses. Jesus is an undeniable historical figure. You can know this. But was he God? Well, here's something else you can know. He died. That's not a big news story, right? We all die. But you can't leave flowers at his grave. Why? There's no body. The tomb is empty. He's alive. He beat the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell. He rose from the grave. He's alive. You can't leave flowers at his graveside. And his first followers, his first family, that group that followed him closely for at least three years while he walked the earth, their mourning on Friday turned into dancing on Sunday. They became the physical embodiment of this passage in Psalm chapter 30, which literally says that you've turned my morning into joyful dancing. You can know you can't leave flowers at his grave. Here's something else you can know. You can know that his family seeks to love him well. Jesus' first followers, they took this call to action very seriously, so much so that they referred to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're a family. That's still true today. We're a family, and we seek to love each other well. Some of your guests today, can I confess something? We don't always do a great job of that. Give us grace. We're human we mess up. Something you often will hear us say here at Venture, we seek Jesus, we see you. We're trying to do well at this. The church is a family. When I was a little boy, I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. My mom taught me a little finger play. Some of you know this. You grew up in church as well. you got to interlock your fingers like this. It hurts when you go like this. And it goes, you know, the church, here's the church building, here's the steeple, open the doors and see all the people. My mom said, no, let's do it a little different way. Say it like this. This is just a building. This is really just an architectural, old-fashioned steeple. 
But if you open the doors, the church is the people, your family. Act like it. Skip ahead from that moment in childhood. Toward the end of my adolescence, my senior year of high school, this moment became real for me. I claimed it. The church is a family seeking to love one another well. It was right after my mom's funeral. Mom died November 10th. Three days later was my 17th birthday. That's actually just freak of how things fell. That was my birthday. That was also the funeral. After the funeral was done, funeral dinner, I'm sitting there with my cousins. I look up, it's my birthday, and I see a group of ladies walking into the room. There's a birthday cake, there's candles on it, the candles are lit, and they're singing. And I thought, oh man, I no, no, party foul, I no, let's not do this right now. And then I looked at their faces. People like Beth Farwell, people like Jan Ewald. These were ladies who had held my mom's hair when she was throwing up from chemotherapy. And they saw a young man who was hurting. And they stood in the gap. I love God's church. I love God's family when we're clicking on all cylinders. God can do anything in us and through us. Listen, one of my biggest evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is his family. The redeemed. This cycle gets repeated then for 2,000 years. I get misty-eyed this time of year. Every time we sing that song that has the line in it, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. This I know. It changes how I live. It changes who I love. It changes my why. Why would I want to be a part of lighting my world? Because Jesus rose from the grave. I believe it. This I know. You can know. What do we say? You can choose to believe. Oh, by the way, there's always a step of faith. There are some things that you can know. There are some things that you can't know, but you can trust. You can choose to believe. For example... I can say the sun will rise tomorrow. And I say it. You believe it. I can't prove it empirically, but you trust it to be true. Why? Because other than the days there was a solar eclipse, every time you've woken up, the sun has risen. Evidence demands a verdict. By the way, we should throw a little bit of a caution on top of that. We need to acknowledge that a lot of damage has been done over the history of our faith because sometimes we've taken advantage of trust. We've taken advantage of belief. For example, I heard a story not long ago. I hate this story. It feels like the entire part of my adult life I've heard us retelling the story of Columbus. Turns out, you know that guy who sailed the ocean blue in 1492, that guy you learned about in grade school as well? Turns out he was a bit of a stinker. Like this story. They're in Jamaica. They've run out of provisions. It's time to head back across the Atlantic. He doesn't have enough to get them home. He tells the locals, I need some of your provisions to get us home. And they say, well, we, we need to make it through the winter as well. You've already been mooching off us for like six months. No, you can't have any. And so he tricks them. 
I don't know if it was in the Nina, the Pinta, or the Santa Maria, but one of those ships, there was a book. Somebody had studied the constellations. He knew, according to that book, that a solar eclipse was coming up. You see where this story is going, don't you? He tricked him. Unless you give us provisions, my God is going to pull the sun from the sky. You've got two weeks to decide. The sun goes dark. His son writes in his account, this is what happened. With great howling and lamentation, they, the locals, came running from every direction to the ships, laden with provisions, praying the admiral, that was his dad, to intercede by all means with God on their behalf, that he might not visit his wrath upon them. If you give me the stuff, then we'll put the sun back in the sky, and I'll pray for you, and we'll take off. They tricked them. They believed him. I just wonder how much generational even damage was done in that moment that hurt faith hurt trust, hurt potential, choosing to believe in our God. I hate that story. Listen, if you have been hurt by somebody who calls themselves a Jesus follower, can I just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that's happened to you. And could I also simply seek to encourage you? Don't blame God for his people's poor behavior. Ask yourself, do you trust God? If you don't trust God, is it because that God has proven himself untrustworthy? Or is it because that somebody you know who might be peripheral to God's family even, everybody has a weird uncle, right? Some of you are like, yeah, we're getting ready to gather with a family here in a little bit. I know there's a weird uncle. By the way, if you can't think of the weird uncle, you might be the weird uncle. Peripheral to God's family, some weirdo has done something dumb. Is your lack of trust in God because of God? Or is it because of some dummy who did something weird? You've got to sort that out because you can. I would even advocate you should choose to trust a few things. Here's one of them. The Easter story is true. It's true. You can choose to believe. You can choose to accept it as true. By the way, I'm not talking about the Easter bunny version. I'm talking about the empty tomb version. We're going to read that account here in a minute. But you should know before we read that that there was a long runway coming up to that moment when the plane was going to take off. For 500, even 700, even 1,000 years before that moment, you remember last week, week and a half ago, was the opening of Major League Baseball. Reminds me of the old Babe Ruth pictures where he called the shot. I'm going to hit the ball over there in the stands. I'm going to hit the ball over there in the stands. The Old Testament prophets have been calling the shots for a very long time. The Messiah is coming. There are over 300 predictions prophecies in the Old Testament that point toward Jesus. There are 48 specific, we'll call them messianic prophecies, that point toward Jesus. The Messiah is coming. There are seven, actually, specific Old Testament prophecies, not just seven, I want to show you right now because these have something to do with Christmas or Easter. Check these out. Number one, here's a prophecy. Jesus, the Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem. You could read about this in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That's exactly what happened. He was born in Bethlehem, witnessed 
by many. Here's another prophecy we would point to. He, the Messiah, would be preceded by a forerunner. You could read about this in Malachi chapter 3. By the way, this is about 700 years before Jesus. This one right here is about 516 B.C., roughly 500 years before Jesus. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He says, make way. Here comes Jesus. Make way for God. Here's another prophecy, that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We read this text last week. This is about 500 years before Jesus. We can actually pinpoint this prophecy to 518 B.C. And last week, we read this together, and we see that Jesus becomes the fulfillment of this prophecy. He rides into Jerusalem east to west on the back of a donkey. Number four, the Messiah is going to be betrayed by a friend. And this would result in his hands being wounded. (laughs) That's actually two prophecies, if you're keeping track. And still, this is 500 years before Jesus. Zechariah 13, verse 6. If someone asks, what are these wounds between your hands? Well, I was given these in the house of a friend. If you read the story, you see the crucifixion account. By the way, this is 500 years before Jesus. It's a full 100, probably plus years, before the Persians even invent crucifixion. The Romans perfected crucifixion. The Persians invented it, and that happened after, at least 100 years after this prophecy was said. Number five, he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, which would be given to a potter. You could read this in Zechariah chapter 11. And if you read through the story of the Passion Week we just came through, Judas hangs himself in the potter's field. He throws those, that money down in the Lord's house in front of the people who plotted and conspired to kill Jesus. This prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. Number six, he would stand silent before his oppressors. Isaiah chapter 57. This is exactly what our Jesus did. Number seven. He would die by crucifixion. You could read the specific uh, account. It's described in Psalm 22. And oh my goodness, does the psalmist nail it. A full thousand years before Jesus is crucified. 600 years before the Persians even invent crucifixion. Here's the point. Jesus was who he said he would be. Jesus did what he said he would do. Let's talk about the odds of these prophecies coming true. You could go to Vegas with these odds. Did the pastor just encourage gambling? Well, if you're going to bet, bet on Jesus, right? Just seven prophecies, just the seven I just shared with you. Somebody calculated these odds several years ago, and he decided it would be one, this mathematician said it would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That would be the odds that Jesus would be the fulfillment, one person the fulfillment of those seven prophecies from up to 1,000 years before it happened. That's just a number to us, right? One to the 17th power, that's one in 100 million billion or one in 100 quadrillion. He went on to illustrate, this is what this odd, these odds would look like. It would be if you took silver dollars, remember those old silver dollars, and you took the state of Texas, and you marked on the back of one silver dollar an X. You could take silver dollars and spread them over the entire state of Texas two feet deep. That's how many 10 to the 17th power silver dollars would be blindfold somebody, have them wait out somewhere in the middle of that pile, reach down and pull out a coin. 
If the back of it had an X on it, that's the odds of 1 in 10 to the 17th power coming true. Those are overwhelming odds. But did Jeremy say Jesus is the fulfillment of 48 messianic prophecies? What does that number look like? Oh, those odds are 1 in 10 to the 157th power. I learned this past week that 10 to the 100th power, that's a Google. You didn't pay for that. That's free. Take that home and do something with that later. But 10 to the 157th power, 1 in that number, what does that look like on the screen? Let's look. Those are overwhelming odds. By the way, 1 in 10 to the 80th power, that's how many electrons that there are in the universe. The the prophecies of the Bible are not by chance. They demonstrate a divine hand. That's the Old Testament runway. Now let's watch the plane take off. I'm in John chapter 20. See what happens. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. She's going to put flowers on the grave. He died, but you can't put flowers on the grave today. And she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter, one of Jesus' first followers, his disciple, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. This is John again, humbly inserting himself into the story. Well, kind of humbly. Stay tuned. They said, And said, she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. This is where, maybe not completely humble. Both were running. I feel like I need to say that in a Forrest Gump accent. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter. I love this. He's an old man when he writes this. And he said, I remember the day like it was yesterday. You think of Peter as the jock, that rough and tumble fisherman from the north side of the Sea of Galilee, I outran him that day. John reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in the strips of, at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. I love the personality we see here. He's rough and tumble. He's a type A guy. He shoulders past John, and he just runs, probably huffing and puffing, into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, he puts it in there a second time. I won. He also went inside. He saw and he believed. This is three years in the making. Three years of walking behind, choking on the dust of his rabbi. He has an aha moment. He's read about the prophecies of the Old Testament. Aha! He did what he said he was going to do. He's alive. He saw and he believed. I would wish an aha moment on you as well. Why? Because my God, here's another thing you can choose to believe. My God is chasing you. One of my favorite authors describes our God as the hound of heaven, chasing you down. Read the story. You've got Mary Magdalene, you've got Peter, then you've got John, the disciple who Jesus loved. And then systematically through the story, Jesus goes to people who are wrestling with doubt. And systematically he chases them down, even convincing the doubting, convincing even the skeptic, like a guy named Thomas. 
Thomas has said, listen, unless I see his hands, unless I see his side, there's no way I can believe. I don't feel peace about this. And Jesus says, challenge accepted. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Put your hand and reach it out and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas looked at him and said, my Lord and my God. I love this. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's talking about you potentially. He's talking about me. Because here's another thing you can choose to believe. Jesus is nudging at your heart. He is. Right now, can you feel the breath of the hound of heaven breathing down your neck? Some of us are here today because we have somebody in our life that loves us and invited us here. I believe that Jesus is trying to push through the boundaries that you've set up around your heart. He's a gentleman. He'll never force himself on you, but he's nudging. Can you sense his presence? Here in a few minutes, we're going to have a moment. We're going to invite you into an invitation time. Perhaps today, Easter Sunday morning 2023, today could be your day to say yes to the hound of heaven. Because you can know, you can choose to believe. What did I say, though? There's always a step of faith. There's always a step of faith. Regardless of where you are on your faith journey, some of us, we took these steps when we were young. These are baby steps. I, I love this picture of God there is a first step. There's a first step of faith. What would it take for you to say yes to Jesus' truth claims? Can you picture my God? I love this. Have you ever taught a child to walk? I love this image of God with his arms outstretched saying, take a step. Take a first step. Walk toward me. You can trust me. I saw this. This image I just described yesterday with some grandmas and grandpas and some moms and dads, our Easter egg hunt yesterday. Take a step. By the way, no parent roots for their child to fall. Your God doesn't do that either. Easter egg hunts are loved by kids and adults alike. I had a blast watching yesterday. I think adults like the joy of watching kids feel joy. I also think we've got just a little bit of a superiority kick that it gives us when we look over and we see that egg that the child has walked past now two times, three times, four times. I see it and they don't. I feel a little bit superior to them in that moment. Can you relate to me? Some of you are going to feel that here this afternoon when you do a, an Easter egg hunt in your backyard. By the way, not to brag, but you're looking at one of the winners of the Easter egg hunt from 1982. I've got a picture to prove it. Yep, that's me. By the way, can we just take a moment and acknowledge the fashion is awesome. I love this. I'm a pepper tank top. I want that. Can we also just take a moment and acknowledge that, hey, kids, some of you think you're cool and you're wearing the mullet right now. Can I just tell you, a child of the 80s and 90s, those pictures are going to come back to haunt you as well. 
Consider yourself forewarned. Forewarned is forearmed. I got to win that. So I've had some experience with Easter eggs. Let's be honest. I have a superiority complex. I see the egg. You don't see it yet. But I've got at least three, maybe four feet elevation on some of those kids out there, right? I've got a better perspective. I've got 40 years of experience. The difference between me and that child is perspective. I have a higher point of perspective. If that's true of me, how much more true is that of my God? I don't know if I can take that step of faith, God. I don't know if I can take that step. And he says, I see. I've got you. His ways are not my ways. He's higher than me. There's a first step in your loving Heavenly Father who is rooting for you, by the way. He wants you to take it. That doubting Thomas we read about just a minute ago, a few chapters before this in John chapter 14. Check this out. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We want to follow you. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, follow me. I'm here to catch you. I'm the way. I'm the truth. Oh, my goodness. I'm the life, eternal life. Follow me. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There's always a step of faith. Sometimes it's a first step. Sometimes it's a next step of faith. The Bible defines faith like this in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. God knows what's right around the corner for you. Do you choose to follow him? I enjoy the outdoors. I like to fish. I like to hunt. And sometimes when I've got one of those animals that I'm cleaning, I love nothing more than to just spend some time exploring the systems of the body. It's amazing to me. Even the bodies of the lower animals that were created by our God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. But every time I do that and I explore how this system works with this system, it brings more questions out. Well, if this is true, what about this? I'm listening to a podcast just a few months ago. And there's this guy in Alaska. He claimed it. He's got a, a gold claim. And the permafrost is melting, and they keep discovering these ancient animals, skeletons, Animals that they didn't even know ever lived in Alaska, like short-faced bear and step bison. And it's like a five-acre patch of ground. They keep finding these, and they're like, where are these coming from? Why are these all here? And I'm listening to the podcast. I'm driving down the road in my truck, and I'm yelling at these speakers. It's the flood. It's described in the Old Testament that the waters of the, the deep receded. And I'm picturing like that swirly thing in your bathtub when the water goes down and all these carcasses of these animals and they're all deposited in this one spot. I'm thinking, that's amazing. That could line up with a biblical flood account. But if that's true, what about this? And what about this? What about the age of the earth? It's launching all kinds of questions in my mind. If you can relate to that at all, can I encourage you? Come back. Next week, we're launching a six-week series. Choose to take one more step. The name of the series next week is Room for Doubt. There's room for your doubt. 
If you've got good questions, God has good, even better answers. There's always one more step of faith. Come back and join us. We're going to wrestle together with some of those. By the way, some of you, some of you are good with questions. Maybe you've never yet crossed the line of faith. You've got too many questions. I love that. I love that about you, and I want to help you with that. We're going to launch what we're going to call a Room for Doubt group. If you'd like to wrestle together through some of those questions, even before you take that first step of faith, Do me a favor right now, pull out your phone and text the number 317-689-8576. You can simply text the word group. We'll get you connected in that group, and we would love nothing more than to walk with you through those questions. There's an invitation on your seat. Maybe you want to use that as a vehicle to invite somebody to come be a part of Room for Doubt with you. Bring them back with you next Sunday. It's going to be an incredible series that we launch. You can know, you can choose to believe, but there's always a step of faith. I want to leave you today with an opportunity to respond. There's always a step of faith. For some of you, this could be your day to take that first step. We're going to sing here in just a moment. Some of us who've already crossed that initial line of faith, we're going to take one more step. We're going to take a step deeper into our faith, our journey to follow Jesus, and we're going to worship our hearts out because we believe the truth of the words that we're singing. But maybe today you came today and maybe somebody invited you, maybe somebody brought you and you're here and you're like, I don't know, I've never crossed that line of faith yet. Today could be your day. If you feel God breathing down your neck. In my opinion, that is the hound of heaven. He's chasing you down. I'd love to help you take that step. While we sing, we're going to celebrate some baptisms even. While we celebrate those, I'm going to be hanging out right over there. Anytime during these next few minutes, if you just want to walk on around, maybe sneak around even through the lobby, you're welcome to do that. Come over and see me over here. Today could be your day. Today could be your day. You take that first step of faith. Would all of you stand up with me right now? We're going to respond. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the truth claims of your scripture. How there are things we can know. There are some things we choose to believe, and then there are some things that we take a step of faith on. And in this moment right now, I want to pray for those who are shifting the weight from one ball of their foot to the other. If they're looking to take a step, would you nudge them, help them, walk with them as they take a step of faith into you following you, our God. We all respond right now as we sing, as we worship, as we choose to claim it. Amen.